0: Okay, so let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. We have been working through the book of Exodus, but I didn't expect to be preaching today. (laughs) And I did not have my next sermon in Exodus completed. And so when Jerome texted me about 5.20 this morning and said, I don't think I can come, I decided to pull out one of my favorite sermons from the past and preach that this morning. So this is going to be from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And it's called the Master Artist. The Master Artist. Let's begin reading then. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Lord, now I pray that you would just fill my heart and mind with these truths and that I could communicate clearly and passionately the wonderful truth that you are a master artist. In Jesus' name, amen. I have always been fascinated by artists, and I think it's because I don't have any artistic ability of my own. I can draw stick figures and that's about it. But I remember as a little kid, my mother was just so gifted when it came. She could sit down with a, a pencil and a piece of paper, and I would say, Mama, would, would you draw me a skeleton or something? I'd just say, a tree. And out of her mind, she would just start drawing this wonderful picture. And I marveled when I just saw what she could take these images in her mind and put them out on that piece of paper. I remember a few years ago, Debbie and I went to Victoria. British Columbia. And we were walking down the street and right there on the sidewalk, this guy had set up a table and a chair and he was drawing portraits of people for money. That's how he made his living. And so Debbie and I stopped and we just walked, watched him. And with a matter of five or 10 minutes with charcoal, he had reproduced that person's features wonderfully (laughs) on this big, large piece of paper. It's just fascinating to me how people can do that. But this morning, I want to talk to you about an artist who is far greater than any human artist ever. He's greater than Picasso or Rembrandt or Leonardo da Vinci. He is the master artist. Every single one of his his art projects turns out to be a masterpiece. It's perfect. Every conception that he has in his mind is fulfilled in reality when he paints his pictures. And of course, I'm talking about God Almighty, who is the master artist of all. I get this from Ephesians 2 verse 10, where it says, we are his workmanship. The word workmanship in Greek is poema. Po, or it might be pronounced poema. I'm not quite sure. P-O-E-M-A. But we get our English word poem from it. For we are his poem. What it means is we are his work of art. We are the object of his special creativity. We are his craftsmanship, his workmanship. He's the master artist. He's producing works of art around the world today. If you are a Christian, you are one of his works of art, and he's working on you. And so this morning, I want to take a look at the canvas that he's working on, the paint that he's using, the paintbrush, That he's using to apply the paint, the painting itself, and then the art gallery that he displays this picture in. First of all, the canvas. The canvas that he's using. The canvas that this master artist is using is very old. In fact, it's used. It's not new. It's used. And it's a very old piece of canvas. Originally, there was a lovely portrait on this canvas, but some vandal, came along with a big sharpie and scribbled profanity all over that beautiful, lovely portrait. And now it's just a confusing, grotesque picture. You can't even tell what it is. It's just that original portrait has been defaced. It's been marred. And that's exactly what has happened to every one of us because we are the canvas that he's painting upon. We started off with a lovely portrait in Adam before the fall. But when the fall came, the image of God that was in us was marred. And it was corrupted. And it was defaced. Notice in verse 8, the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Or verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You And we, those are the canvases, but now go back to verses 1 and 3 and see the you and the we there. Verse 1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Or verse 3, among them we, all too, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." Adam was originally alive to God before the fall. Well, he has passed on his own image to his offspring, and his offspring have passed on that image to us, and we find ourselves not alive to God, but dead in sin. Adam originally walked with God in fellowship in the cool of the day, but verse 3 says we don't naturally walk with God, we walk according to the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We walk according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the devil. We do his will. Adam originally was a child of God. But the Bible tells us that we are sons of disobedience, in verse 2, and children of wrath. In verse 3, Adam originally enjoyed God's favor upon his life, but the Bible tells us in verse 3 that we have God's wrath upon us by nature. So this beautiful original portrait has been completely defaced and marred and someone scribbled all over it, vandalized it, put graffiti all over the thing. You can't even tell what the original painting was. It's been corrupted by an evil one. And that's the canvas. And unless a remedy is found, we, all mankind, will perish eternally. The original beautiful portrait has been permanently defaced beyond description. This is talking about the fall and how it's affected every single one of us. We're all fallen in Adam. But now let's notice the paint. What's the only thing that can cover up that ugly image on that blackened canvas. Well, it's the master's paint. That's right. The white paint. That's right. He takes out his white paint and he starts going over that ugly canvas and he paints all the way until all the traces of the old portrait are completely removed and he's got a beautiful white canvas to work on. Amen? Amen. And what he's done is as though that ugly impression had never even existed. The old ugly scrabblings and scrawlings are, have been completely blotted out by the paint of the master. And that talks about how when we come to Christ he justifies us. He removes all of our guilt. He washes us in his own blood. He makes it as though our sin had never existed in the first place. It's completely blotted out like a thick cloud. And so the paint represents the grace of God. We're the canvas. And in order to make a masterpiece, God has to apply something to our lives to bring it out. And what He applies to us is His grace. He begins with a white... Paint the white grace of pardon, pardoning grace. The very first thing as a sinner that you experience when you come to Jesus Christ is this heavy load has been lifted off your back. Do you remember Pilgrim's Progress where he's carrying this pack and he's trying to get to the celestial city and he's leaving the city of destruction. He sees the cross and this big heavy pack, this weight falls off of his back. That's what happens when we come to Jesus Christ. The artist takes his white paint and goes over all of the old sin and garbage and gunk and ugliness of your life, and it's gone. And he purifies you. He declares you righteous in his sight. But he doesn't stop there. Then comes the regenerating grace, another color. He adds the green of new life, regenerating grace, where he takes us who are dead in sin and he makes us alive together with Christ. He takes those of us who have hardened, calloused hearts, and he softens them up. And he takes out the old heart of stone, and he puts in a new heart of flesh, and he causes us to walk in his statues. So here's regeneration, new life. And then he adds another color to that canvas. And now we find him giving us sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace is when God begins to work on you to make you like Jesus. It's his spirit working within you to conform you to the image of Christ. It's him putting his finger on sins in your life and saying, this has got to go. And you find yourself repenting of sin, confessing sin, deliberately turning away from those sins, crying out to God to deliver you from sin because you want to be holy, sanctifying grace. And then you find preserving grace in your life. Another color is added to that portrait preserving grace this is god's grace to keep you in his love so that you don't totally or finally fall away from him and so the lord works within all of his people to keep them paul says i'm confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of christ jesus jesus christ is the author and the perfecter of faith We have His preserving grace going on in our life. But that's not all. Then there's empowering grace. Another color is added to the portrait. Another kind of paint. Because we need the power of God to live out the Christian life. And what He does is He comes to us. And He enables us to do His will. He works in our desires. He works within us so that we will and do the good pleasure of God. And then we have sustaining grace. Another color is added. When we go through heavy trials, and all of us will face heavy trials at one point or another in our life. We might even be facing them this morning. Heavy trials. Or the Lord sustains you by His grace so that you don't throw in the towel. You don't give up on Jesus. You don't just walk away from your faith. But He continues to work within you so that you continue to look to Him and continue to trust Him. And then there's comforting grace. The Lord comes and he wipes away the tears when you face tragedy. Loved ones die. People are failing in their health. Perhaps cancer strikes. And you have all of this turmoil, all this tragedy going on. The Lord comforts you. And then there's reviving grace. When our zeal flags and we're no longer... Walking as strongly with the Lord as we once did. And we find ourselves kind of hobbling through the desert. Not really walking in sweet fellowship with Jesus. The Lord will sweetly come to us and revive us. And he will bring us back into close fellowship with Jesus Christ. The master artist is using his colors to paint. And he's applying grace to our souls. Now, what is grace? standard definition is unmerited favor. Well, let's see in the book of Ephesians what grace is. Here in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved. So grace is what God applies to a person to save them. No one can ever be saved apart from the grace of God. Over in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So grace is something that God freely bestows on people. Look at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. Not only does God freely bestow grace, He lavishes it. On his people it is the basis of any person's salvation <clears throat> now this is the way I would define god's grace. it is his unearned and undeserved favor to hell deserving sinners it's unearned it's undeserved it's god's favor. Okay? his blessing, his kindness, his goodness, to hell-deserving sinners. Now, if that's true, then it stands to reason that our salvation could never be by our own works. If grace is required for any person to be saved, and if grace is God's unearned and undeserved favor, then our works cannot contribute at all towards our salvation. And that's what he tells us in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. Romans 11, verse 6, Paul says there, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What he's saying there is that you cannot mix grace and works. You can't say, okay, I'll I'll accept salvation 90% by God, but I'm going to contribute 10% of my own works and together we make a real good team and together we'll make it into heaven. You you can't mix grace and works. It's like oil and water. They just don't mix. You can't mix them. It's pure grace. 100% grace. 0% works. So salvation is not of human effort. Salvation is a result of God's free favor. Now, why did God design salvation to be this way? By grace instead of works. Well, verse 9 says, Not as a result of works so that no one would boast. Grace glorifies God. Works glorify who? Man. And works lead to boasting. And boasting is a manifestation of what? Pride. How does God feel about pride? He hates it. He's opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So God designed salvation so that we can't steal any of the glory, and we can't take any of the credit, Because if God saves by grace, there is nothing for us to boast of. God alone has done all of the saving. We we have contributed one thing towards this whole thing, our sin. And that's all we contribute, nothing else. God does all of the saving, we do all the sinning. That's how salvation works. You say, but wait a minute, wait a minute, what about my faith? Didn't I contribute my faith to this whole thing? I mean, God didn't believe for me, right? I was the one that believed in Jesus Christ. Can I take just a tiny little bit of credit for having faith in Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is, no, we can't. Because verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Jesus said in John 6.44, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then in verse 65, he says, No man can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Now, when Jesus said, Come to me, what was he talking about? No man can come to me. What does that mean, to come to Jesus? Yes, it's really talking about faith. Saving faith. Because in verse 35, he says, He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Do you see the parallelism there? He who comes is parallel to believing. So when Jesus said, No man can come to me, what he was really saying is, No man can savingly believe on me unless he is drawn by the Father. So folks, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can't even take credit for that, because God enabled you by opening up your heart, by giving you a new heart, by regenerating your dead soul, by making you alive together with Christ. The inevitable result of a new birth is faith in Jesus Christ. So here we have the paint, the grace of God, the grace of God enabling faith, enabling repentance, pardoning us, sanctifying us, regenerating us, preserving us, comforting us, empowering us, reviving us, all the way through the Christian life. The master artist is continually adding paint to your canvas, continually pouring into your life what you need. Let's talk about the brush. What's the brush? What is the instrument that God uses to take His grace and apply it to your life? I would say that brush is our faith. Notice in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now the prepositions there are important. By grace, through faith. He doesn't say by faith you have been saved. He says by grace you have been saved through faith. It's like a a man dying of thirst. He has no water And all of a sudden, this hose, he he discovers this hose, and water's coming out the end of it. Now, what's going to save him? The water, right? But how does the water get to him? Through the hose. (laughs) God's grace is what saves you, but how does the grace get applied to your life? Through your faith. Your faith is the hose. Your faith is the instrument. It's the brush that takes the paint and applies it to your life. So that's what faith is all about. Now, what's biblical faith? We've talked about what is biblical grace. What's biblical faith? I would define true faith as belief plus trust. Belief plus trust. You see, you can have belief without trust. For... Many, many years of my life, I believed that if someone jumped out of a plane with a parachute, I believed that that parachute would help them to land safely and they wouldn't be harmed. But I never entrusted myself to a parachute until about eight or nine years ago when Debbie, as a Christmas present, (laughs) (laughs) gave me a ticket to go jump out of an airplane skydive. You know, I didn't do it alone. They don't let you do that. But I went in tandems with somebody else who had already jumped out about 8,000 times. And she gave me this for a Christmas present. And I'd already, already always told her, man, I'd, that'd be so cool to jump out of a plane. I'd love to do that. And then when I got this ticket, i go, oh, no. No, I have to do it. <laughs> and she gave one to my son, Jonathan, too. So we went over to Lodi, where they have those planes, and they chartered the planes. And we went up in the air and strapped a parachute on my back, and I entrusted myself to that parachute. See, that's different than just believing in your head that that parachute will work. You see the difference? It's not enough for you just to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and He's the Savior of sinners. You have to entrust your soul to this Savior to actually save you. Do you see the difference? Commit yourself to this Savior. That's biblical faith. And we can't boast of it as we've already said, because God gives it to us as a gift. Now, let's look at the painting. We've seen the canvas, we've seen the paint, we've seen the brush that applies the paint to our soul, our faith. What about the painting? This painting has many different colors and shades and intensities and forms and shapes. And this painting describes the Christian life. Verse 10 tells us that it's a life of good works. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. This painting that God is making of your life represents a beautiful, lovely Christian life that's full of good works. Now, as we begin to respond to the grace of God in our life, this painting begins to become beautiful. It starts to take on shape. As he applies a little paint here and another type of paint there and different shades and intensities and forms, pretty soon we start to see this picture taking shape. And the artist is not in a hurry. In fact, he takes a sweet time about it. Sometimes we get a little impatient. Lord, would you just finish the painting? No, no. He's going to be drawing on your life until you die, until you meet him face to face. It's a lifelong project where he is completing this masterpiece. He's not in a hurry at all. And we slowly find the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not until our life is over until we're going to see the perfection that we long for. Now, what is the biblical teaching on good works? Verse 10 says that we were saved for good works. It doesn't say we were saved by good works, but we were saved for them. Let that sink in, because in many quarters of the church today, if you mention good works, it's almost like you've mentioned a dirty word. Like, we don't talk about good works here. We're not saved by works. It's almost as though if you talk about good works, you're going to get into works righteousness or legalism or something like that. But the Bible doesn't talk like that about good works. The Bible says that you were saved for good works. That's what it says in verse 10, doesn't it? Or am I misreading that verse? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for for the purpose of displaying good works in our life. Now, let's be very careful here. Good works are not the root, but they are the necessary fruit of salvation. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Do you understand that? We are saved through faith alone. But the kind of faith that saves is a kind that is never alone. It's always accompanied by fruit, by good works. You are not saved by faith plus works. You are saved by a faith that works. See the difference? It's not your contribution of works plus God's grace that saves. No, you are saved by a faith that works. We do not work to get saved, but we work because we are. Saved. Now, no one repudiated the idea that good works are a ground of salvation more wholeheartedly than the Apostle Paul. But no one insisted more on good works as the fruit of salvation than the Apostle Paul. So on the one hand, we can't go down the error of saying that works in any way contributes towards your salvation. But on the other hand, you don't want to fall into the ditch that says good works are meaningless. It doesn't matter if you have them in your life at all. Yes, it does matter. It matters very much as the evidence that God has saved you. It matters very much. Now, let's just do a quick sampling of what the Bible says about good works. I'm going to start in Matthew and just work my way quickly through the New Testament. Jesus talked about good works. In Matthew chapter 5, In verse 16, he said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus wants you to have good works because that brings glory to your Father which is in heaven. 2 Timothy chapter 3 speaks about the good works of the Christian. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Do you know this book? The purpose of this book is to equip you to do every good work. (laughs) That's how important good works are. That's why the Bible was given to you. Well, it's given to you to save you. And once you're saved, it's given to you to equip you to do every good work God has for you. Or what about Titus? The book of Titus emphasizes the idea of good deeds or good works over and over and over. But look at Titus 2.14. Talking about Jesus Christ, it says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous. For good deeds, <clears throat> that's to be the attitude of the Christian—to be zealous. Now, what does it mean to be zealous or something? <clears throat> yes, excited, um, fired up about it, on fire. <laughs> Are you on fire to do good deeds? That's what the Bible says God wants from His people: zealous at a boiling fever pitch. So in the morning we ought to wake up and say, Lord, please show me the good deeds, the good works you have for me today, and let me walk in them by your power so that I can glorify my Father which is in heaven and use your word today to enable me to do those good deeds. Titus 3.14 says, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Folks, if you're not engaged in any good deeds, you're unfruitful. God doesn't want you to be unfruitful. He wants you to be fruit bearing, bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And then one final text from Hebrews chapter 10. This text tells us one of the reasons why God wants us to gather in church meetings. You ever wondered why do we do this? He says, he tells us, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of sun, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing nearer." So he says, consider, think about how you can, what's the word he uses, stimulate one another to love and to good deeds as you don't forsake the assembling of yourself together, but you come together to encourage each other all the more. See church is not just about somebody standing up and preaching, although that is awesome and beautiful and God uses that, but it's also about the body ministering to itself. It's about people encouraging one another and stimulating one another to Go ahead and do that good deed that God put on your heart. Go ahead and love that person who's persecuting you and hurting you. See, the body is to exhort and encourage and stimulate one another to do these good deeds. So there's just just a very quick synopsis of what the Bible in the New Testament says about good deeds. Just as the sun was created to shine, that rose was created to give forth a delightful fragrance. Birds were created to fly, so the Christian is created to demonstrate good deeds. Purpose for our existence, to glorify our Father by doing good works. Notice something also back in Ephesians 2. In verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now notice this phrase, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Isn't that interesting? God created the good works beforehand, before you ever did them. He, This tells us that God has a plan for the Christian's life, that, that God sees into the future, and he's already ordained that certain things are going to come together in your life, and he is going to direct you to do certain good works. That makes the Christian life exciting because you never know what God's already planned for you, right? (laughs) It's exciting. So there we have the painting, this beautiful painting taking shape, a, a, a life of good deeds, glorifying the Father, looking like Jesus. But there is one final thing we need to see and that's the art gallery. And that comes out in verse 7. It says there, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now just as, imagine an artist who's very wealthy. He he lives in a mansion. And he takes several of his biggest rooms and he turns them into galleries. And he invites over his family and his friends. And when they come over, they enjoy looking through these rooms and seeing the masterpieces that he has created. God is kind of like that. He's a very wealthy artist who produces these masterpieces, and he is going to put them on display for the entire creation to see. Notice verse 7. So that in the ages to come, this is talking about the eternal ages to come, he might show, circle that word show, He's going to show them off. He's going to put them on display. Well, what is He going to show? What's what's God going to demonstrate in the ages to come? It says here, the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What's that mean? He's going to show off to all the millions, perhaps billions of saved souls in heaven. I want you to take a look at that Kelly McIntyre. I want you to see what I did in that woman's life. I want you to see the grace and how my kindness transformed her and brought out the image of Jesus Christ in her. Not only that, I want you to look at that Willie. And I want you to see what my grace did in her life and how it transformed her and took her from a life of sin and pardoned every sin and made her a zealous lover of Jesus. And he's going to go through one after the other, showing off his masterpieces, and we're all going to walk by looking at them and just be blown away by, Lord, this is amazing. I can't believe what you've been able to do with the wrecks of humanity, the fallen wrecks of humanity. You've reclaimed them out of the trash bin, these old canvases that nobody, were, they're were worthless. You took them out. You you painted them white and you put this masterpiece on them. Lord, you're incredible. And we're going to give glory to God through the ceaseless ages to come by looking at what God has done in people's lives. And notice it's not just enough for him to say his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's his grace in kindness. And even that's not enough. He talks about the riches of his grace in kindness toward us. And even that's not enough, so he mentions the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness. In other words, we will marvel at the surpassing riches of God's grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And we will be the sub- we'll be looking at each other, learning about God's grace in heaven. Won't that be wonderful? Won't that be awesome? So there's the art gallery. Another thing that you should notice about this is the word show in the Greek is in the middle voice. And what that means is God is doing it for himself. That he might show for himself. The surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? God is primarily doing this. Yes, he loves you and he's doing it for you. But he's primarily doing it for himself. God delights to glorify God. Read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will see that's why God does what he does. You are not the center of God's universe. God is the center of his own universe. This is not the Brian show down here. This is not the Debbie show or the Oleg show. This is the God show. This is the God show down here. God glorifies God. That's why God saved you, because God is glorifying his mercy in you. And to those people who are not saved, God will glorify his justice and wrath and power in them. God will get glory on every person who's ever been brought into this world. Now, as we wrap up our time together this morning, i have three thoughts for you. First of all, I want you to allow these truths to encourage you. If you don't like what you see in your life, don't despair. Because the artist is not done with you yet. He's only started. He's got a lot more to go. He's still painting on you. He's still making a beautiful portrait out of you. So don't get discouraged. He's not finished. Sometimes when you see a half done painting, it's confusing to look at, right? What is that thing? I can't even figure out what it is. Well, sometimes our lives might look kind of confusing. Well, it's because we're half done. God isn't done with us. He is in the process of sanctifying us. But I guarantee you, you will be happy with the finished product. Now, if a canvas was unhappy with the way it looked, what could it do? But the only thing it could do is lie still and let the artist apply more paint, right? And folks, if you're unhappy with your progress in the Christian life, let God apply His grace to your life. Soak up His grace. Receive His grace. Let the grace of God move you and change you and transform you. Time and paint is all that canvas needs to become a beautiful work of art. And time and grace is all we need. The master artist is working. Secondly, allow these truths to comfort you. Sometimes we get to thinking, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the end. I don't know if, if I'm going to walk away from the Lord one day. I, I don't know if I had a, a severe trial or tragedy in my life, if I would just walk away from Jesus Christ. Can I make it to the end? The master artist never gives up on a painting he starts. Now, sometimes if I was drawing a picture, I might give up because I'd get bored with it, right? Or perhaps I would give up because I get tired and I just don't have the strength left, so I'm just going to rest from my my art job. Or maybe I run out of pencils or pens or, or paint. But see, God never gets tired. He's omnipotent. God never runs out of grace. He has an infinite supply. And God never gets bored with us because we are His delight. We're the delight of his soul. (laughs) So this master artist will not give up on you. Once he starts to paint your life, he never stops until it is completely perfected and is a masterpiece in his art gallery in heaven. Thirdly, allow these truths to excite you. You notice I said the Christian life is exciting because you don't know the good works that God has planned for you. Folks, when I was growing up, I was a very shy person. I didn't like to get up in front of crowds and talk. In fact, if I had to, you know, get up and give an oral report, I would turn beet red, and I would just do my best to get through it and sit down, or sometimes I wouldn't even do it. I'd take an F rather than get up and talk. I could have, in a never in, in a million a million lifetimes i never would have dreamed that god would take me as that kid and make me a preacher make me a pastor those were good works that he prepared for me i didn't know they were there and i don't know the good works he has for me in the future which makes life exciting because we discover as the time goes by the the good works that god has already planned for us and laid out for us isn't that cool you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but God does, and God has it planned, and God loves you, and God's going to bring you into those good works, and you're going to find joy and delight in performing the good works. And that It's not like we were masochists. All right, I'll do this good work, even though I hate doing it. No, we delight ourselves in the Lord, and He gives us the desires of our heart, and it becomes a joy of our soul and our heart to please Him and to do these good works. You know, people look at Christians, and they think, man, I, I'd hate to be one of you guys. You're always going to church. You're always boring. You know, you're always doing things that are so miserable. They don't understand that when God changes the heart, we're not doing what we don't want to do. We're doing what we want to do. We love going to church. (laughs) We love God's truths in His Word. We like talking to God in prayer. We enjoy worshiping Him and singing. This thrills our hearts. But they have to have their eyes open to see that, don't they? So the Christian life is exciting. Let it excite you. Some of you might be canvases that the master artist is just pulling out of the garbage heap. and it's just starting to paint on. You're just beginning the Christian life. And some of you may be just about being completed. Just a few more deaf strokes and his work in you is over. We're all at different places. All of us need to take heart that we have someone bigger than us that is doing this work. You know, if if the Christian life was just Brian pulling himself up by the bootstraps and just determined to do right, man, I, that would be misery and, that, and I'd fail. I wouldn't make it because I don't have the kind of resolve necessary to always do what God wants me to do. But we have an artist working upon us, a workman working in us, to will and to do his own good pleasure. So let's keep our eyes fastened and fixed on Jesus, the one who starts and the one who perfects our faith. Amen. Lord, would you take these truths and cause them to burn brightly in our hearts today? Give us joy, excitement, comfort, and encouragement in the fact that you have saved us by grace and that you are the workmen, and we are the workmanship. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen.